Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card, issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk Sports Edition. Today we're going to talk about heat stroke why that's bad and sometimes lethal, what causes it and how to avoid it. Of course, I've got with me my two co-hosts, uh, Gary O'Reilly. Gary. Hey, Neil. The former soccer pro and active sports commentator, and we borrow him from the rest of his life to yep. participate on Star Talk Sports Edition. And of course, Chuck Nice. Chuck. Hey, Neil. That's right. All right. My longtime co-host, yep. professional comedian and actor. Yes. Acting like a comedian. There we Acting go. Acting like a comedian. Okay. <laughs> So, Gary, what have you cooked up today about heat stroke? Well, the whole world has basically been sweltering and suffering through heat waves recently. Um, but what if you were an athlete and you had to do your thing outside in the summer months? Now, this fact is going to leave you a little bit cold. Between 1980 and 2009, there were sadly, tragically, 58 football players dying of hyperthermia in America. So not hypothermia, which we all heard about when you when you no. freeze to death. Yeah. Hyperthermia. Correct. Okay. All right. So these were all American football players in the US, sadly, mostly in high school. Yeah. Ouch. Now, yes, ouch. Clearly something needed to be done, and someone thankfully stepped up. Now, on the back of that, what is climate going to be like in places like Atlanta in 10, maybe 20 years' time? What precautions are going to be necessary? for us, not just athletes at that time? Will sports themselves have to change? Uh, for those answers, we will need a climatologist and help us see into the future. And that will be coming up later on in the show. But firstly, let me introduce you to a lifesaver. Professor Bud Cooper, clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology at the University of Georgia, right? Helped instigate the heat rules for Georgia high schools, in particular for high school football. He sits on the Medical and Science Advisory Committee Board for the Corey Stringer Institute in Connecticut. Now, if that name is familiar, just it think is. Minnesota Vikings player and the death of that man was tragic. Uh, also, Bud Cooper is a person who used science to save lives. So, Neil, a hero. We're all in. Thank you, Professor Cooper, for being part of the show. Can I call you Bud? Absolutely. Absolutely. And my pleasure to be with you guys today. This is, uh, this is an opportunity. Excellent. Excellent. So. Could you just tell us, by the way, kinesiology, I read a book, an entire book on kinesiology when I was in high school, and I said, damn, if I didn't love astrophysics so much, I'd be a kinesiologist. <laughs> yeah. It was it was like, it was, it was physics applied to the human body in thing. ways that I was just so fascinated. Yeah. And so I just want you to know that I might have been like your classmate or your or down, down the hall from you. Uh, in, in your department. And we would have had a lot of fun. Head. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> what goes on in heat-related illnesses? I know that, you know, we're warm-blooded, so we have to maintain our body temperature to function. That's part of the, the lot that we were dealt at being uh, human beings. So, so you're saying at some point we can't maintain it and the temperature just goes up and there's nothing our body can do about it? 
Well, your body has a, a thermoregulatory system that's built in. It's wonderful. And, and uh, when we start to get hot, what do we do? We start to sweat. So um, as we are engaged in activities uh, and the outside temperatures begin to rise, our thermoregulatory system has to adapt to that. And as long as we can keep that metabolic balance going on, we're in good shape. Uh, it's when that balance is not met that we have to look at alternative means with which we can implement uh, policies or, or practices that will prevent the catastrophic events such as heat exhaustion and heat stroke. But if you're sweating, of course, presumably your body needs the sweat to evaporate. This Otherwise, right. it's not, you just get wet and funky. So, so when you talk about heat, I presume it's not just the heat. There's a humidity factor as well, right? Actually, there's, there's two factors that play into that. Humidity is is by far the largest influential factor, and you know down here in Georgia, we 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 call it the hot corner of the United States because it is not only hot, but it's also humid. But the other component that goes into all of this is what's called the radiant heating effect. Mm. This is what what everybody experiences. You go outside; it's been a hot day. You lean against a, a building that's brick, and you go, "Oh, that wall's hot." Or if you stand mm. in a parking lot and you go, oh, man, that asphalt is cooking. Yes. Ba basically, the, uh, the cooking the egg on the surface of something that's been sitting in the sun. <laughs> it is. <laughs> that, it is. That, that whole and, deal. Yeah. And, and, and we're running into more and more of that because, yes, we're seeing hotter days, days that are hotter longer. So getting hotter earlier in the day and lasting a longer period of time. But we're also seeing that um, for whatever reason it may be, we're seeing that uh, institutions, colleges, universities, high schools, all putting in artificial surfaces now because it's easier to maintain. Uh, we don't mm. have to worry about the grass getting chewed up. We don't have to water it. We don't have to do any of those kind of things. However, all of those artificial surfaces are now contributing to that solar heating effect because of the manner in which those surfaces are manufactured. So um, right. it's becoming mm. a big problem. Um, the most common underlaying surface of those artificial surfaces is ground up automobile tires. And oh. if you watch any, any I've done that. You I, I I laid out I laid flat on one of those fields and parted the quote grass and it was just jet black yep. underneath. Yep. Little particular particles. And I said, whoa. Yeah. Uh, you, you watch whoa. any of the uh, you know, college or NFL games over the weekends or whatever. You'll see the athletes turn and cut and get tackled, and you see that black cloud come up. Black cloud come up. Yep. Yeah. Which they, which in a way, if you're a fan, it's kind of cool because it's what they use to show if a guy's foot was in bounds. You see the little, the little shards of tires go up in the air. You're like, oh, he was clearly in. He was in. He was in. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Cool. So, Dr. Cooper, do you just look at someone and say you need to go sit in the shade, or is is there a clinical process for you to decide that? this person is about to enter a heat stroke? So there are a number of different things that we are looking at, not just the amount of sweating that's occurring. In fact, in some cases, somebody's sweating mechanism could actually have shut down and they stop sweating. Right. It's, it's in one way or the other. It, it's not just one. It could, it could be uh, either too much sweating or profuse sweating. It could be not sweating very much at all. Um, they could appear very red-faced or they could be very right. pale. Um, they oftentimes will start to lose a little bit of their cognitive abilities. They'll look very lethargic. Disor disorientation. Disorientation. So uh, there are a number of different components that we look at. Uh, I was the uh, athletic trainer that was in charge of sports medicine for the Peachtree Road Race. Gary probably don't know that one, but it's the largest 10K in the United States. 55,000 runners on July 4th. And wow. so, uh, you know, we would obviously want to be very keen on preventing heat stroke and we would have medical personnel along that entire 10K road race course looking for individuals who exhibited those types of, of symptoms. And when we saw them, we would pull them out of the race, transport them to the finish line, and there we would treat them. And, and I'm happy to say in the 10 years that I oversaw that, we never lost a participant. 
Because we did the right thing. Yeah, but they punched you in the face for taking them out of the race. They didn't like that. Yeah. They did not like that. <laughs> we told them they would get their T-shirts. So. <laughs> uh, there's something we should have said at the beginning that we didn't. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the, the reason why we sweat is on the expectation that the sweat will evaporate and the evaporation cools our body. It does. But if it's humid, the sweat is less likely to evaporate and therefore less likely to cool your body. Absolutely. And that's the foundation of what's going on here. And isn't, they say that, that isn't that why they have, uh, uh, what's it called, the wet bulb temperature, which is different for, I mean, uh, to, to, for somebody being able to withstand the heat? It's a, it's, a, it's a comprehensive assessment of the environment. It looks at humidity, it looks at air temperature, and it also takes into account that radiant heat issue. So it looks at all right. three of those variables, albeit humidity is the most heavily weighted variable. But you're right, as the humidity gets higher and higher and higher, and it's not uncommon in the Southeast for us to have humidity days where the humidity level is 80, 85%. But if you would go to you know Phoenix or or uh, you know Albuquerque or whatever, their their humidity levels are down 25 percent. So it's very different. And it's one hundred and fifty degrees, but it's a dry heat. It's a dry heat. You'll <laughs> love it. So as that humidity level gets higher, it makes it more difficult for the body to evaporate uh, the sweat off of your skin. Um, so I just want to, to to establish that up front because it it plays into so much of what we're talking about. It does. Yeah. It does. So if we're if we're finding ourselves unable to cool down through sweating, that must be affecting our core temperature, and there must be a point where that is an indicator of oh heat stroke or you're about to go. Let's do something to prevent that, or it's too late. You're already there. So how are we we being you and your medical staff? identifying that as a fact. So looking at it as a variable, can we predict it? It's very difficult uh, because the best way to assess your core temperature is doing it rectally. And that's how we get the most accurate assessment of what your core temperature is. But when your core temperature hits 104, that's the critical breaking point. Anything above that, you are really at risk of right. uh, succumbing to a heat stroke, and that could be a catastrophic event. So um, that that is that is what we do. So when we see someone that is uh, exhibiting those um, signs and symptoms that I mentioned earlier, we immediately you know bring them into uh, an environment that is not stressful. So more shade, uh, right. remove their clothing as best we can, and we do uh, a rectal temperature probe to see what their core temperature is. And if it's at that level, we immediately immerse them in a cold water tub. Got to get their temperature down. I got to say, um, getting your temperature taken rectally will certainly make that a memorable practice. Well, and, and, and if you're at that level, 103, 104, I promise you, you're not going to fight me on that because you're probably not going to be conscious. Yep. You're going to so, be knocked out anyway. So, yep. uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the thing is, the thing is, Dr., if your medical team or a medical team is not around and someone is starting to hit those numbers, what then collapses within the body to end up with fatality? And I want to add to that, but how is it that our body can be so sensitive to just a couple of degrees up around there? What, what is the most sensitive organ to Ooh. just a few degrees change? Well, oh, again, cool. your, your, your core organs are going to fluctuate on that, but your hypothalamus is the control center of telling whether or not we need to do different things. So that that's going to be the control center uh, for that going on. But um, you're really, as an individual, and you're succumbing to those kinds of things, you're not going to know that that's what's going on. So you're at the mercy of having medical professionals there. Uh, there was a case report of, a, of an individual who had gone, I think it was in Phoenix, Arizona, to participate in a mountain biking event. And he was coming from the east, not hot, not dry, like that area. Got started on the race. He was about a mile or two into the race, got off course, and nobody knew where he was. And they finally found him about an hour later, um, lying unconscious. They thought that he had fallen and had a head injury and was unconscious as due to that. And they treated him as such. They never looked at his core temperature or anything like that. When they finally got him to the uh, hospital, it was then that they 
deduced that it was actually a heat stroke. And unfortunately, the individual didn't survive the event. And that was because it was not diagnosed correctly. And and again, uh, you know, it was just a a tragic, tragic chain of events there. So now when you call it a stroke, does it mimic... um, any of the characteristics of an actual stroke? A traditional uh, stroke, A traditional yeah. brain stroke? And are any of the resulting um, uh, injuries, uh, lasting injuries, uh, do they mimic a, a, a traditional stroke? So if you're a look at the, at the true definition of stroke, he had a stroke. We're talking about the cutting off of blood flow to the brain. That's usually brought about by a clot or an aneurysm, something along those lines. When we look at heat stroke, it's a little bit different. And that is that the body, because it is getting to be so hot that the internal organs are shutting down as a result of that, they're not shunting blood in the direction of your brain. So yes, it it, it would be catastrophic from that perspective, but it's not to be construed as the same thing as what we see from a cardiovascular death that's brought about by a, a stroke from that True definition. Gotcha. So, Bud, we've got what goes on, physio- the physiology of suffering, heat distress, and heat stroke. What are your heat rules? And is it as simple as go and stand in the shade? Which, by the way, my mom used to tell us when we would play football in the back of the house where there were no trees at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in July. And she would say, what the hell are you doing? Get, get <laughs> in the shade. You're going to have a heat stroke. <laughs> no, she would say that. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's, an, that's mm. an informed... Person, by the way, just to reiterate what Bud said earlier, it's not just the temperature of the air outside, it's the radiant energy coming to you from any source, be it the walls, the ground, or of course the sun. Yes. So if you step out of the sun into the shade, that takes away one of the forces driving right. your heat exposure. So when we come back, Bud is going to tell us exactly what Bud's rules are and yeah. what is it about them that help them save people's lives other than just tell them, get the hell out of this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, other than Chuck's mom's rules. <laughs> Chuck's mom's rules. All right. She didn't get famous with those rules. Yeah, yeah, Let's exactly. find out why Chuck's mom is not who's being interviewed <laughs> here. And Bud Cooper is when Star Talk Sports Edition continues. Sleep. Grocery shopping themselves. Just a few things working moms seldom have time for. And during tax season, you can add taxes to their list. So for all you working moms, make the easy switch to H&R Block and have an expert make easy work of your taxes. H&R Block guarantees your taxes are 100% accurate and your max refund or your money back. Plus, with their no surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even have an H&R Block Tax Pro do your taxes in a block office or online from the comfort of your own home. Can your current tax guy promise all that? When you're buried under life's to-dos, let the experts at H&R Block stay on top of your taxes with a return that's right on the money and your biggest refund possible. Because tax season after tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Descriptions of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Bring everyone together for a great time with the Nintendo Switch system. 
get the whole family in on the fun with exciting games that everyone can enjoy, like Super Mario Bros. Wonder, Animal Crossing, New Horizons, and more. Nintendo Switch has three different play modes all in one system. Play in TV mode, tabletop mode, or handheld mode when you're on the go. Visit nintendo.com slash US slash Switch to learn more. Games rated E for everyone. Star Talk Sports Edition, we're back. We're talking about heat stroke, and we've got Dr. Bud Cooper from the kinesiology department at the University of Georgia. Heat rules have saved the lives of athletes, especially those in high school who get run into the ground by their athletic coaches. And, Bud, just what, what are these rules? And why should they be different from anything anyone came up with before? So the rules that have been in place for years was were, were brought out by the American College of Sports Medicine. They had a position statement on uh, how you can prevent exertional heat stroke. It was a consensus position statement by a bunch of people who are really, really knowledgeable in the area, but it was opinions. They sat around, talked okay, about Okay, so this it. is, you talk about BC times, before Cooper. Before, before Cooper. But Cooper, right? Right. right. <laughs> yeah, BC, okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> All right. to address the problem, I wanted to look exactly at what was going on. So, I did a three-year epidemiological study where I just tracked everything. We had high schools, Involved in the study, representing five areas across the uh, the whole state of Georgia. And um, we had certified athletic trainers at each of those high schools. And I collected data for three years. I needed to see where the trends were. We looked at everything from length of practice to uh, wet bulb low temperature numbers to uh, time in the season. We looked at all of that. And at the end of the three years, I was able to aggregate all that information and then come up with policy suggestions that addressed all that. And what we saw was that... By what, you're, what you're saying is that everyone before you just pulled it out of their ass, basically. Uh, well, yeah. just, or, or rather, let me be more polite. They did not treat it as a study. They just thought, this makes sense to me. Let me just put that in the pot. Absolutely. That's what that sounds like. Right. Okay. That would be gotcha. like asking you and Gary and Chuck as to what's the best way to cook a steak. You would all yeah. have your opinion. We just, you know, everybody's got a mm-hmm. different way. And yes. everybody's got a and, different yeah. way. And my, and my answer is, let someone else cook it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best steak you have. That's, that's, that's the best steak you've ever had in your life. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So we looked at that data and we came up with, um, what we saw was that in the month of August, which was the first four weeks of football practice, that was the, the most critical time. And we could see that whenever temperatures got higher, when practices got longer, that's when risk went up. So, uh, and people are in their worst shape because they've been, they've had the previous absolutely. months of summer where they weren't doing a damn thing. Absolutely, and 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 a lot of the research that had been done earlier showed that uh, in order to do justice to preventing heat stroke, we had to make sure that the individuals were acclimatized the environment in which they were practicing in. So one of the rules that we put into place was that they had to have five days of heat acclimatization. No equipment. All I could have on was just their helmet. Practice was limited to two hours, and they would get acclimatized to the hot weather that they're going to be participating in. Once we got through those five days, then we gradually lengthened practice. We gradually introduced equipment. But the the key component was that we set up parameters that said that as the environment got hotter, because we knew that that was the most important uh, influential factor. When the WBGT got to higher and higher levels, we had to change things. We would shorten practice. We would take equipment off. We would increase rest breaks. We would increase hydration breaks in order to allow the athletes to continue practicing. We didn't want to take that away, but we had to do things that mitigate that risk. Because we saw that from the the uh, three years of study of just looking at what the trends were. So we were able to look at that. I presented that to their uh, rules committee. I said, this is what I really think we need to do. Um, all knowing that, that the rules committee, which was made up of uh, football coaches that have been coaching 35, 40 years, you know, oh, we've been praying football this way forever. And, you know, right. we've been doing fine kind of thing. Presented right, that information. Right. Honestly, Gary, 
they um, and 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 Neil and Chuck, all three of you, they they probably discussed it for twenty minutes. Came back and said, "You know what, Bud? We're going to put every single thing that you have suggested." into policy because there's no way we can say it doesn't work because you have the facts you have right, the data right. so yeah. there's also a little also a little it, something it's called, called litigation <laughs> no that's litigation <laughs> little something called litigation it's like okay. well you know this guy came to you a few months ago with all this information and right. not yet, so. yep yeah yep. plus science that's the, one of the objectives of science is to remove yes. people's opinions absolutely right? what's going yeah. on and so you know Face the, the facts. The, the, the great thing about uh, what we did was it was the first study that looked at, at the facts. We developed a policy based on those facts. And, and to date, there hasn't been another state that has done the same thing that we've done. So, well, well I, I don't get that. So clearly your, your, your uh, um, research is out there. You, you, you took an... Oh, I know what it is. They're only Georgia rules. You see, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're eating peaches in between plays. Right. <laughs> so other states, tell me about other states. There's no yes, other... What, exactly. So uh, the state of South Carolina has, has um, taken a lot of what we've done and they have applied many of our rules to their state association. Florida and North Carolina. Similar climate in South Carolina. Similar climate. Florida and North Carolina take bits and pieces of what we've done and applied it to theirs. Mm -hmm. But by and large, the rest of the the states across the continental and Hawaii and Alaska have not done anything like that at all. Um, I'm in the North. Why do I need you? Well, uh, that's a, that's a great, th- I mean, that's kind of funny sounding, but that's a really good attitude question because right. uh, uh, you, you hear about heat deaths up here as well. O- only mm. recently, right. While you see more of them in, in the South, it does happen everywhere. And, and, and we're seeing that, I think, mainly because we're getting hotter and we're seeing yeah. areas in the North that um, are, are experiencing heat waves. Again, you know, the Corey Stringer Institute was founded on the death of Corey Stringer. That happened in Mankato, Minnesota. You can't get any further north than right, than that right, area right. in Minnesota, and that was because right. they had a heat wave up there. So, so there was a there was a young man that was uh, it, clearly he had had a heat stroke uh, here in New Jersey. Uh, I don't I forget if it was last summer, but uh, or the some I, I forget. But um, and they they put him. In the, uh, they took all the ice in the Gatorade things and they literally submerged him in that. Is that part of your protocol? It is. It is. Our protocol is to immerse an individual into a cold tub, ice immersion bath, where the temperature of the water is 50, 45 degrees. It is the fastest way to get the core temperature down. We need to get it down below about 102 before we would allow them to be transported by an ambulance or an EMT service or anything like that. And, and the problem is, is that ambulances don't have cooling mechanisms on board, and most hospitals are not set up to do that either. They have ice blankets they can put people on, but we're getting them submerged up to their neck in ice water. And it, it is the best well, plus way. Any, any, good, any good locker room is going to have Unlimited supply of ice, right? For ice bags. They should. Put some ice on that. But, but, you know. Put some ice on on that. (laughs) One of the rules that we have here in in, in Georgia is that whenever the WBGT gets to 86, it's mandatory that that ice tub is on site and ready to go. Uh So that when somebody. What is WGBT? What is that? Wet bulb globe globe temperature. Wet bulb globe temperature. So it's looking at those. On an abbreviation basis with a wet bulb globe globe temperature. Globe. WBGT, okay, right, got it. right. Mm-hmm. So, so, but if if you've not been able to bring organisations towards your thinking uh, as as blocks as states, particularly the northern states, have you found coaches in northern states come to you individually and dip into your program because they realise they've joined the dots and they've found out it's not a smiley face? It is. It is. Um, I've had I've done talks in in Illinois and and other northern states, and they're very very interested in that. Uh, they they want to know what do we need to do to ensure that that doesn't happen. And and I think that there is becoming more and more fear 
because there have been some cases recently where a, a student athlete has died from heat stroke and the parents have taken it to a criminal court case and the coaches have been yeah. uh, charged with manslaughter. I mean, this is, this is not taken lightly. So I got a call from a reporter in Billings, Montana. Um, and, and I'm somewhat familiar with Montana. I go skiing there every year. Uh, but they are experiencing a heat wave currently right now with their temperatures in the upper 90s, not common at all for Montana. And his question was, the coaches really don't know what to do. And so he sent me their policy that's in place. And the policy is uh, looking at smoke because they have problems with wildfire up there. So what do you do when it gets really smoky? There are also policies in there on what you to do with uh, hydration. So what should we do about hydration breaks? But it's during competition, not during practice. And what we know is that about 90 to 92% of all heat strokes in sports occur during practice, not during competition. So while they're saying we need to increase the hydration breaks during competition, they're not doing anything to address the times with which the risk is the greatest. And that's in practice. So, um, and of course, it's not a problem until it's a problem, it, right? And exactly. so now they get 90, 90 degree days. And they don't know what to with do. no precedent. They don't, they don't, know don't even do. know what to do. Exactly. Yep. And coaches are not the best people in the world to make compassionate decisions. <laughs> let's, let's just be honest. It's like, you know, I think I'm having a heat stroke. Really? Well, drop it. Give me 20. Like, you know. <laughs> My finger's dislocated. Pop it back in and it, get back out there. Exactly. Yep. But, yep. but, okay, so we've, we've got people in Billings, Montana, who are acting like the British with three inches of snow and panic because they don't know what to do because it doesn't do that there. Now, this is going to replicate, I'm sure, as we go forward 10, 20 years time. Where do your rules advance with the climate as it changes? Mm. So glad you brought that up. I did a study with another friend of mine, and he's a climatologist. And we actually looked at the United States as a whole and looked at average WBGT temperatures over the entire United States. And what we did was by averaging those, we were able to break the United States down into three geographical regions. Region one, region two, and region three. Region three would be the areas that have the highest values. That would be, you know, across the southeast and you know, the south and into the southwest area. And then the region two would be in the center, more the Midwest Atlantic coast regions. And then region one would be up there with your Oregon's and your Minnesota's and your Maine's and New York's and things of that nature. I think the next step is to then look at those three geographical regions and try to come up with better recommendations for those schools in those areas, knowing full well that in the event that somebody in Minnesota gets a day when it's 95 and 60% humidity and they're wearing full gear for a football game, Something has to change. And, and, and you know, I, the, the question was brought up earlier, was there pushback from coaches? And there was a little mm. bit. But you know what? We are giving them an out by saying, we have things that you can do. We're not trying to cancel football. We're not trying to mm. eliminate it. We're just trying to mitigate your risk. We can do things. Take some equipment off, shorten your practice. Why can't there be a standardization of what, you, what you've studied so that it just becomes basically the rules across everywhere when we reach a certain temperature uh, you know put these yeah. put these protocols into place i mean that would make everything really simple it certainly it's, would it's called the bud protocol right? <laughs> yeah the bud protocol right yeah gentlemen that, i think we're gonna have to go to the bud protocol there you go <laughs> <laughs> but no i get better the cooper criterion Ooh, that's better. I like the, that. Yeah, the, the I like that. Yes. That's better. Ooh, I believe this calls there. for the Bud Protocol. No, sir. I think it calls for the Cooper Criteria. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try to show me up. They're the same damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, wait, Gary, isn't the, isn't the World Cup someplace hot? Yeah. So we couldn't get it on the sun, so we took it to Qatar. Uh, <laughs> okay. Nice. Well, I didn't know the Sun put in a bid for the FIFA World Cup. <laughs> yeah, they did. They did, but they didn't win. The um, Sun lost that one. Okay. <laughs> so the thing is, it goes to Qatar. 
as long as there's not a heat wave, you're going to be facing 80s and 70s of average temperatures, humidities in the 60s and 70%. So what protocols do you think we should be looking for the organizers, FIFA putting in place, like hydration breaks in the middle of halves? Or what do you envisage the teams being able to do to mitigate heat? And if it does get a heat wave, which is not unusual, apparently, um, what could they do? You know, having scheduled hydration breaks is going to be going to be a, a very critical. And, and you know, we don't want to ru- ruin the spirit of the game by, you know, having a break in the middle of of the first half at twenty minutes or whatever it might be. Um, you know, to to try to change the, the the continuity of the game kind of thing. But but really, Gary, the the bigger aspect, and and, and we actually see this is that we need to ensure that the athletes that are going to be participating in that World Cup are acclimatized to those conditions. That's the key. So uh, I'll give you an example. Um, in 2015, I was in Scotland uh, on, a, on a study abroad trip. I had taken a, a group of grad students over there, but I met with the Olympic coaches for Team Scotland. They were extremely concerned about their distance runners being able to compete in the Rio de Janeiro games because... It is hot and it's humid in Brazil and it's not that way in Scotland. And they were like, well, what do we need to do? You know, should we have Scotland not known for its rainforest? Uh, no. No. Yeah. And, no. And 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 you know, not not to to be slight on them, but it was like, should we make them go out and train with with heavy coats on so they can really get their core temperature up? And my answer was no, because that's make not- them drink Scots. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Run the whole race drinking scots. <laughs> That'd do it to you. <laughs> so the the um, the recommendation that I gave to the folks in Scotland was: is you've got to get your athletes down to Brazil or to an environment that is similar in climate, so that their athletes can train. And it's going to take them about fourteen days for that to happen. So you're going to have to pack them up and move them somewhere where it's hot and humid for about two weeks prior to the Olympic Games so that their athletes are acclimatized. And I think that's, that is going to be key to any country that is participating in uh, the World Cup is that they're- okay, but I have a new business idea. We create a biodome where we have complete control over the temperature, the, the radiant heat, and the humidity. And we dial in the averages for the location that people need to train, and they do it right there in the biodome. I like it. What do you think of that? I like it. We actually do uh, some research in an environmental chamber where we put either a stationary bike or a treadmill where we can control the heat and the humidity, and we do Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, studies that way. But again, that doesn't mimic what a what an athlete does on the soccer field or a football field because they're doing very, right. you need, very you different need a, things. In that dome, it have to be fields and yep. tracks and things, yep. right? So so it something tells me airfare might be a little cheaper. Well, that's my point. Yeah. So <laughs> the, if there's one in Europe, one in North America, South America, you can train there before, and you, then you, you don't have to fly the whole team until you're actually ready to compete. And, and maybe I mean, you can dial a, it up a notch, make it even a little harder. That's then, an expensive project, Neil, if you trying to replicate something the size of a soccer field or a football field. It's not more expensive um, than the money people have to spend on sports. I have come to church. <laughs> guys, we, we got to call it quits here. My gosh. Ah! I know. Sorry. I know. It's good stuff. I'm telling you, kinesiology is the thing. These folks have the physics literacy that makes, every, makes the world go round. Hey, bud, uh, let me tell you something. And he's not blowing smoke. I've over the years I've heard Neil say this several times about how much he loves kinesiology. And I'm yeah, like, okay. <laughs> and I'm like, Jesus, is there any level where you are not a nerd? No. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we so we think we should call it the Cooper Criterion. Yes. And mm-hmm. you heard it here first. Um, and except Bud Cooper came up with it. <laughs> 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 But it definitely sounds good. Super criterion. Uh, but we loved having you on the show. Um, this is a this is a work in progress, clearly, uh, because we're going to see um, what other aspects of your kinesiological expertise can serve the the world of sports, uh, because they're looking for every way they can. The things that we brought up, it, it obviously we need a lot more research done to address some of the other right. areas of need as well. So, uh, excellent, excellent. In the so meantime, we're gonna let you go in this. Put some mice on it. We're gonna let you go in this segment, but when we come back, we 
are going to look into the future of climate with a climate expert from Columbia University, Dr. Radley Horton, when Star Talk Sports Edition returns. You know what shouldn't feel like rocket science? Planning a vacation your whole crew will love. With Carnival Cruise Line, it's all up to you. You can kick back or dive right into the fun. Paddleboard in the crystal clear waters of one of Carnival's exclusive destinations, Half Moon Key in the Bahamas. Take an ATV ride through the jungle or just relax on white sandy Caribbean beaches. The fun continues on ship. From a ride on the Bolt roller coaster to a moment of pure bliss at the Cloud Nine Spa. Kick off the evening with a craft cocktail at any of Carnival's dazzling bars and lounges and take your pick of restaurants from surf and turf to family style Italian. Then settle in for an evening of live entertainment. Whatever your vibe is, you'll come home with plenty of stories to tell. So pack those bags, be sure to leave room for a few unforgettable memories because no one does fun like Carnival. Book your dream vacation at Carnival.com. Ships Registry, The Bahamas and Panama. eBay Motors is here for the ride. You saw the potential and through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. We're back. Star Talk. We're talking about heat and we came out of the dungeon of heat strokes and the harm it's done athletes especially those in high school uh training in in august especially in football and this is outdoor training of course and we thought we would sort of extend that into just a general understanding of the trends of heat waves and so what do we need for that we need a climatologist and we didn't have to look far because columbia university right up the street from us, uh, has experts. And we've got a Lamont Research Professor, Columbia University, Dr. Radley Horton. Radley, welcome to Star Talk. Great to be here again. Nice to see you. You're not just any ordinary climate scientist. You specialize in climate extremes. Oh, oh. Yeah. to the okay. extreme okay. of the X Games of climate. <laughs> <laughs> the climate octagon. That's which storm will win this year and what is? And your yeah. expertise has, and your writings have gotten you on various uh, uh, national and international task forces and committees mm-hmm. to advise municipalities and nations on yeah. what they should do. So let's, let's dovetail my first question to you with what we just saw in the first two segments. Um, we, we heard that in Atlanta, Georgia, they implemented these new rules, BUDS rules, uh, the Cooper Criterion, mm-hmm. for keeping athletes alive, basically, not suffering from heat stroke. Is this a fact that will start surfacing in places where it never surfaced before? So everyone is going to have to start paying attention to Bud's rules? I think absolutely. Um, you know, I'm talking more and more about sort of the two waves of 
climate change in a sense. I think we're approaching the point where most, but not all people, are realizing that the statistics of these extreme weather events like heat waves are already shifting quickly, right? We're getting more heat waves, longer lasting, and just more extreme than, than we thought. We knew that would happen. But what's also happening, I think, is this realization that it's actually happening much faster than we thought it would. We're not just getting that predicted you know, 50% increase in the frequency of heat waves. We're getting unprecedented heat waves, three, four degrees warmer than anything that's ever been experienced in a place or arriving three or four decades earlier than we thought it would. So I think circling back to your question. You mean, you mean the once a century uh, extreme event is not happening once a decade? Exactly. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I said, it's funny. I had a conversation where uh, somebody was talking about climate models. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, yeah, the only thing wrong with climate models is that they were all right and that they didn't predict how fast it would happen. You know, so, and that's it. That's it. And I think it's frankly a challenging point for some climate scientists because we're used over the last 10 or 20 years to hear our models attacked climate change isn't real, that sort of thing. And now, of course, it's clearer than ever, climate change is happening. We're the primary drivers of it. But we also need to simultaneously reflect on the fact that our models are lacking, but in that other direction. They're missing what we call these kind of tail risks, right? They they actually Mm -hmm. don't do a real good job at predicting those lower probability, high consequence events. And unfortunately- When you say tail risks, just yeah. there's a lot in that phrase. Yeah. You yeah. don't mean biological tails off of animals. You mean <laughs> yeah. in, in, in a distribution of any events, uh, there's the tails of what happens that are much more extreme than what's in the middle. So it's a right. mathematical tail of a curve. Right? That's, That's right. That's what you're referring to, right? That's right. So Radley, Radley, the ironic point for me, looking at it as a former athlete and someone who's going to be suffering heat waves, the key solution to heat stroke is hydration. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we have extreme temperature rises. We are entering more and more heat waves and droughts. So the simple question is, where's our water going to come from then in the future if <laughs> hydration is the solution to the problem? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of aspects to that. Fortunately, you know, human consumption of water is a, is a tiny amount of all the water we use. It's mostly things like mining, inefficient approaches to agriculture. Mm. But the broader yeah, point... Yeah, also, also fracking um, uses a huge amount of water. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the broader uh-huh. point, I think, is really important that we need to simultaneously be thinking about not just the higher temperatures, but how are these other climate variables changing at the same time? Are our crops, for example, going to yeah. be suffering from these more extreme temperatures that make it possible for more air to basically get sucked out of the atmosphere due to those high temperatures, precisely at times when... There's not as much rainfall or a snowpack is melting earlier, so we don't right. have that, that water supply. So I think your, your, your point is absolutely right about shared risks across temperature and, and other changes in climate variables. Which, by the way, just in case anybody's wondering, everything that Radley just said is already happening right yes. now. Snowpacks are melting quicker and then we're seeing shorter snow accumulation mm-hmm. seasons. And then we're seeing more rain that creates runoff where it should be snow melting very right. slowly. And what that does is it leads to an exacerbation of drought. So mm-hmm. all of these things are working hand in hand right. to exacerbate the situation. But that's happening right now. Wait, Chuck, that's why we have an expert to tell us? Just uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think he's this is not a, Chuck he's the being, meteorologist was, show. Well, he's, he's making, I put it out there. He's making the points and he's doing so eloquently. So let's uh, let's go with it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Before we get to Gary's questions, because he's got a ton of them, I just want to slip in there this notion that we have these models. Could you explain what goes on when they show hurricane paths and they say we have the you know our models and the Europeans have models and they predict something different. I don't know that the public is ready to hear two entire continents of experts predict two things differently. I don't know that they know how to wrap their head around that. Could you just Mm, give us a few moments insight into what's going on and how it is that an entire continent of scientists can have a different model from another continent? Yeah, yeah, totally. So 
you know, how do we all think about uncertainty, right? The idea that we can have some things we understand really well, but there's always going to be some uncertainty in these nonlinearities, right? Where over time, an initial error in, you know, not knowing exactly where steering winds are going to be for the jet stream, you know, can sort of percolate over time, leading to two divergent solutions. So basically, it's coming down to um, uncertainties about initial conditions to some extent, us not knowing enough about um, the details of what's happening, say, over the ocean right now, but then also how the model... Like the butterfly effect, as they... they, Mm. I I read an article, I have to put this in there. There's this journal, I don't know if you guys know about it, Um, (laughs) Radley surely knows about it, but Gary and Chuck, there's a journal called the Journal of Irreproducible Results, Mm -hmm. and it's where hyperactive scientists who have crazy, fun, sciencey ideas that are just completely mm. inane. If they write it up, you can get it published in the Journal of Irreproducible Results. So one, one article was, was it Hurricane Andrew or what, one of the really bad hurricanes? The scientists wrote, they found the butterfly that caused the mm. hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> and they studied the butterfly in this article. It was, it was hilarious. Oh, God. But, um, funny. This whole, this whole notion of the butterfly effect that yep. you could send the future results of a model in completely divergent directions. Right, right. And most of the time, um, you know, there's that cloud that, uh, of uncertainty, but it's narrow enough that it can be very useful for planning, right? We can have a sense that there's a 20% chance that a stretch of the coastline would experience a hurricane. That's enough, usually from a risk management perspective. But why be- are European yeah. scientists different from American scientists? I don't, I don't get that. Because well, the European models always stop at the less advantaged countries and try to colonize them first. No, yeah. that's what that is. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you, Radley, and just sort of spin it back into Bud's home turf, as it were. What do we think the southern states, the U.S., are going to be experiencing weather-wise, climate-wise in the next 10, 20 years? Because I can't see it staying where it is. I can only see it getting worse. Why are you, yeah. why are you focusing on the southern states there, Gary? Because, because it's Bud's home turf. Bud's, okay. Georgia, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I think you know, one place to start is that's a part of the country where we also have these extremes of heat and humidity persisting mm-hmm. into the evening hours, uh, into the early morning. Yeah. So we need to be thinking not just about that worst moment of the day for heat and humidity, but the fact that, you know, if we're nudging up temperatures just a little bit and humidity up just a little bit, um, that means it's going to be harder to find time during the day to be able to exercise outdoors. It means it's going to be harder for people to recover at night, to, to sleep well. Mm. So in these Places that are hot and humid to begin with, just shifting up those baselines, um, you know, will have a very profound effect. It could mean 20 or 30 more days per year experiencing these, these extreme conditions. But I think it's also important to sort of consistent with some of the other things we've been talking about, look at some of the places where people might not think of those risks as being quite as severe. It might surprise people to know that the roughly the highest combination of heat and humidity ever experienced up in Wisconsin. Um, so doesn't happen as frequently, but from this risk management perspective, if you're worried about that worst event for a year, low probability, but catastrophic consequences, especially for people who aren't used to it, it's definitely not just the Southeast. And even some places like the Southwest, very hot and dry in terms of their climatology, but under the right, if you will, conditions, the Gulf of California, that water, you know, between the Sea of Cortez, essentially Southern Mexico, that's some northern Mexico. That's some of the hottest waters in the world by late August, early September. On the right, in the right conditions, um, plumes of moisture can actually make their way into those desert regions. It's not the typical day per year, um, but if we're not prepared, even even at the LA region um, can be can be vulnerable to this. So what we need to find out is not just how will these average changes in climate affect this, but what about these wild cards? How hot are those bodies of water like the Gulf of California going to get in the Extremes. Persian Gulf? Exactly. How is irrigation um, going to lead to more moisture in the atmosphere? Crop practice. I, I think it's important for you to tell just because when you talk about hot bodies of water, mm-hmm. warming water temperatures during this time of year, uh, whether it's in the Atlantic, uh, w- what is that doing and why is that important? Because, you know, I think when people hear about warming waters, they don't get they don't get this correlation mm-hmm. between these 
these big storms. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, they're only thinking about warming air, right? That's the only right. thing they care about, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, issue number one certainly is the hurricanes and tropical cyclones. As water temperatures get above a threshold around 80 Fahrenheit or so, it's much easier to get that energy pump going whereby winds from a storm causing evaporation um, of that very warm water leading to a lot of evaporation. You basically can start uh, a cycle where the sort of engine roars and you, and you get a hurricane. Warmer the waters are, the more potential for a really powerful um, and devastating hurricane and, and landfall. But here, you know, another issue is the minimum temperatures in a lot of our coastal regions, even places like the Northeast US, are very closely coupled to those water bodies nearby. And in a world mm-hmm. where our coastal waters in August, September, these sort of warmest times of the year in the Northern Hemisphere start to creep up a few degrees higher, maybe in ways that our climate models haven't predicted well, we increase the risk of more extremes of heat and humidity, and maybe mm-hmm. also really heavy rain events, not just through hurricanes, but things like these atmospheric rivers, because the, the, the surface of the ocean is communicating with the atmosphere directly above, warm those waters, not only does the air get warmer directly above it, there's the potential for a lot more of that moisture to evaporate into the air where it can cause catastrophe, right? Either through wait, heavy wait, rains if, if the, or... If, yeah. if the air is warmer and we mm-hmm. know that warmer air can, uh, can accommodate higher quantities of, of water vapor or moisture, if it can accommodate it, why should that fall out? Of the, why does it just stay there? So that does it go great- up and then all drop out? Yeah, I mean that's a great that's a great point. I think the issue there is that it can be true that in it can so we're getting evaporation really sort of all over the world's oceans, right, and and over the lakes. But it has the tendency to fall out as precipitation in, in very specific times, right, and very specific places. So the evaporation is happening everywhere, but trying to figure out exactly where it's going to rain out and how intense that is going to be. Um, is something that really can change with climate change. And the balance of evidence suggests that um, it's those really heavy rain events that are going to become that much worse, right? So we have our sewer systems designed to accommodate an inch or two of rainfall, you know, maybe in an hour tops. With climate change, if we start getting these four inch an hour rainfall events, like we right. seem to be seeing more and more, it has a nonlinear impact, right? It's not like flooding increases just a little bit. You can go from no flooding to really extreme flooding if our drain pipes right. aren't, aren't designed for that. So but towards your question, I think, Neil, just to, to sort of step back a little more, I think this is at the cutting edge of, of a number of central climate impacts questions. A warmer atmosphere, which we're getting, can hold more moisture, but it won't always, right? So certain areas that are prone to being hot and humid, the Southeast US, for example, coastal areas, we can expect those areas not just to warm, but also to get more humid. It's less clear what's going to happen in parts of the West, for example, right? Those areas maybe get higher. They don't necessarily get more, more moisture, more, more rainfall, more moisture in the air. But because they're hotter, they're going to suck moisture from crops, from forests. This is actually a recipe for these catastrophic wildfires and potential crop losses And I talked earlier about the limitations of climate models for those tail risks. Now we have these communities trying to do impact assessment, right? What's going to happen to crop yields, forests, um, you know, the composition of trees. It's not just the person dying in their attic, right? It's it's like the food chain and everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we're missing the tails there too, right? Because our models inherently are too simplistic. They don't understand, and they don't understand the interactions between all these systems. What happens when the heat wave happens at the same time that air quality is suffering because you're getting more more wildfires? What does that do to Bradley, human health? if you know right? your models are simplistic, then make them more complicated. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or I, I think yeah. that's right. And while you're at it, while, <laughs> while you're at it, how come you haven't solved? Quantum computing. What is your problem? <laughs> What's your problem, Bradley? Bradley. Can we throw that one back in Neil, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah. Just to be clear, I, I, yeah. I, what I said was a joke. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem is, and Bradley, correct me if I'm wrong, you could add more complexity, but the range of complexities you could add, you don't have constraints on what is the right complexity to add and what isn't. And you could yeah. end up getting wildly uh, off results. Yeah, if, I mean, you're I, not, if, if you're not judicious about it. That's right. I think, you know, one way to think about it is we need to invest more in 
individual models, get to higher spatial resolution, add new processes that let us, for example, simulate how changes in ecosystems as we get these higher temperatures and rainfall, then feedback on the climate, right? Those changes. In do you need more probes in the ocean or in the air or in the forest? What, what do you... Yeah, that's an important piece too. That would help with the point you raised earlier about the less does initialization, what we call what we know at the beginning errors that, you know, if we have mistakes at the beginning, they can percolate and become bigger errors later in, in a hurricane track. But, you know, I think we also need to, as we're improving models, step back in a qualitative way. There's this motion towards what are called storylines, just sort of stepping back and trying to understand all the ways that these systems interact, including the solutions, right? So, sit down with, with people who are health professionals, uh, managing athletes, and say, what are the things that concern you the most? What keeps you up at night? And then we think about how all these systems fit together in a qualitative way. Um, and with advice saying. to do something about it. Gary, absolutely. Uh, a few more minutes, but uh, you had some questions loaded up. What do you have? I have. Thank you. Uh, Radley, are we going to see things like hurricane seasons being extended and maybe moving further north to begin with? and our evolution as a species has been adapt and survive. What adaptions can we start to implement now while all of your data is getting harvested? Yeah, so we got to get going with adaptation right away. At right? the time of thinking, oh, we just reduce our emissions and, and we won't need to adapt, that's a false argument, right? Because Partly because we have so many vulnerable communities right now, right? Let's think about all our people with the pre-existing health conditions, heart disease, renal failure, respiratory issues. Um, these people need help right now, um, um, even before you think about heat waves. So what can we do? Everything in urban areas from more cooling centers, more advisories, getting the word out to communities where maybe English isn't uh, first language about the dangers of these, of these heat waves as they approach. Um, steps to increase shade. We talked about the radiant heating um, earlier. Those are some of the kind of things we can do. And I think also accommodating um, as much as we can, changes in uh, the practice schedules or time of day for things like sports. But also, what about all the farmers out there uh, who are having to work during these times of extreme heat? Well, wait, Radley, you're, what you're suggesting is to use to what you're suggesting is to use an acid rain proof umbrella as the solution to the acid rain. <laughs> so yeah. what, what, are you saying? Yeah. Are you saying we're yeah. and we just have to? So I don't call this. I don't call this adapting. This yeah. is this is this is suffering under it, trying to yeah. mitigate losses. That's not adapting to it. Well, that's yeah, and I'm glad you made that point because all these adaptations they're not cost free, right? If it was yeah. easy to do these things, people would have done them. And as we come up with these adaptations, we got to make sure they don't lead to the vulnerable suffering even more, right? Who's adapting first? Is it the wealthy? Is it venture capitalists who are getting access to information about? It's What's both. Gonna flood both of those, first, you know, well, or, the people are, or the countries that have the most access yeah. to fresh water, yeah. for example. Who, are they, are anyway. that's the new, is that the new oil of the future? Yeah. And, and yeah. who often... Um, uh, yeah, but everything you're saying is it's what we call resilience, mm -hmm. which, you know, people talk in this term resilience because it sounds good. And nobody knows what the hell right. it is. But that's what it is. Everything you just said is what it's about because we are kind of screwed. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody yeah. wants to say it, but we are kind of screwed and we have to do both. We have to have mitigation and we also have to have adaptation at the same time. For sure. We got to make sure we're doing them in, in a sensible way where they're operating at, uh, you know, sort of against each other. How do we do it in a way where the, the decisions we make for adaptation mitigation work together? Planting more trees, you know, for example, in, in, in a lot of places. But yeah, I mean, basically, it's a negative narrative in a lot of ways, right? Climate change faster than we thought these impacts on systems faster than we thought it. The key question is, is there evidence out there that maybe there are some nonlinearities working our, in our favor on the solution oh, space, right? Oh. And that, that's, See, that's what, go back now and figure those out, okay? And then, yeah. come back, and then come back to StarTalk and say, here's a way that we can have a runaway process that's in our favor rather than one that will yeah. render us extinct or get right. rid of all of our coastal cities. Right. right, young people who are you know going to pick their colleges, pick their jobs based on whether um, those entities are reducing their emissions. Thinking about resilience of vulnerable communities, cultural shift, right? And priorities, yes, yes, right, yes. Investors, Ooh. people procuring all those sorts of things. Yeah, 
All right, so we gotta we gotta land this plane. Uh, Bradley, just give us. Can you say something positive before we go? <laughs> I think it's that. I mean, my cliche would be the course I teach at Columbia. Just seeing over the last ten years how students nowadays really do, you know, pick their colleges and their first jobs and where they're going to invest their money on whether entities care about uh, racial justice, whether they're focused on reducing emissions, whether they're thinking about their supply chains and their workers and their vulnerabilities. We're getting there, right? That's just the ivory tower, but you know, if we're seeing that across society, I think we're a social species and we can see change quickly. And what we heard about, you know, in the first segment is a is a critical example of that we need what Bud was describing the, the criterion, you know, to to you know, go viral is the wrong phrase for it, but but that's spread okay. out in this. That, that's thing. beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful, Bradley. I'm glad you're capable of saying beautiful things like that. <laughs> it's you. not just all, all doom. And <laughs> so thank you. thank you for and, taking- and and then you top it off with and by the way we're all going to die. We're all going to die. Radley, thanks for sharing some of your time with Star Talk and your neighbor. So we might tap you again for some other ways you can contribute to our intensely interested audience in this topic. That'd so, be fantastic. Nice to have you on. By the way, do you have a social media presence? I do. Thank you. I'm on Twitter at, at Radley Horton. At Radley Horton. Okay. I will right, see what, what gems you can share with us. But hopefully, it's advice on how to mitigate all of this so that there's a world that our descendants can uh, inherit and not be ashamed of who uh, left it for them. <laughs> right. So, Gary, Chuck, good to have you, man. Always a pleasure. Pleasure. And, and Radley, like I said, we'll find you again. We know we would be great. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Neil deGrasse Tyson here for Star Talk Sports Edition. As always, I bid you keep looking up. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.